What is a stimulus package? What is in that COVID-19 stimulus package Congress passed on Friday? And how did Congress come to a consensus on this bill? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. On March 16th, the White House announced a new initiative to address the coronavirus in the United States, titled 15 Days to Slow the Spread. Across the U.S., we watched as schools closed, businesses shuttered, and events got canceled with the intention to enforce social distancing and self-quarantining. These two things were designed to and have helped manage our safety and health, which is obviously the priority, but the broad closure of businesses has had some damaging effects on the economy. As this pandemic wears on business owners, employees, laborers, suppliers, and many, many more. People, unfortunately, are falling victim to the strain of stalled profits, layoffs, and furloughs. And while President Donald Trump and the Coronavirus Task Force lead the country, the legislative branch on Capitol Hill is the part of our government that really has the power of the purse. So for the last two weeks, Congress was hard at work putting together a stimulus package to bring relief to corporations, small businesses, employees, and others feeling the financial strain of this pandemic. Here to help us understand everything happening on Capitol Hill is Fox News Chief Congressional Correspondent Chad Pergram. Chad, you've been covering Capitol Hill for years. So to jump right in, what is this stimulus bill and what does it mean for Americans? You know, there's a lot of debate about even if the term stimulus should be the right word. Uh, you know, this kind of is a, has been derived from what they did in early 2009 after the economic, uh, you know, collapse mm-hmm. after the financial crisis. Uh, there are some who will be very stark and very frank in their descriptions as to what this bill is. This was a bill to save people from lying in the streets, being homeless, no jobs, 45% unemployment. That's really what this was about. This was to save the American economy. Uh, I mean, a stimulus is when you have some things going and things are doing okay. But when, you know, basically the entire country is virtually shut down, uh, that's what this was about. And you can quantify that by just, you know, evaluating the raw amount of total money that's in this bill. Some of it is new money. Some of it is not. Now, Larry Kudlow, the White House economic director, said that, you know, the, the technical total is around $6 trillion. Now, about $4 trillion of that is liquidity that's been provided by the Federal Reserve. The remaining, about $2.2 trillion, not all of that is brand new spending, but much of it is. Some of that is small business loans, aid for the airlines, uh, direct payments. That's the $250 billion that people will start to get in their paychecks around the 6th of April, about 94% of all American taxpayers will receive that. That's about 140 uh, million total households right there. Uh, Let's put this into contrast as to how much the federal government spends every year. They spend $4.3 trillion every year. That's everything. That's Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and that's what we call the uh, mandatory spending side of the ledger, which is about 70% of all spending. And then the remaining 30% is what we call discretionary, where Congress approves the 12 annual spending bills. You might remember the big, long government shutdown in late, uh, late 18 and into 19. Well, that's that side. Um, so a lot of this is brand new appropriations. A lot of it is just, you know, as they describe it sometimes in Washington, 
dropping money out of helicopters. So $2.2 trillion, uh, if you spend $4.3 trillion annually every year, what the appropriated part, again, the so-called discretionary spending, that's about $1.3 trillion. So we're looking at almost $1 trillion more on top of that. This bill didn't just come to the American people all at once. It came in three phases. So can you break down those phases of legislation that have been passed by Congress in response to COVID-19? The first one they approved was $8.3 billion. That was uh, for NIH and the CDC uh, you know, to help them develop vaccines and, and just to amp them up. Uh, $8.3 billion is is not a lot of money in the federal sense. And then they don't really know the cost of the second stimulus bill, a so-called stimulus bill, because they don't have, there's no baseline for coronavirus. We've never been through this before. But the family leave portion of that bill alone was $104 billion. And so that thing is believed to be maybe when you get into everything else and all the, uh, you know, the extra leave that it was providing, maybe as high as 300 to 400 billion total. So you see how we have spent just a staggering, a staggering, unprecedented amount of money uh, in just a couple of weeks. Right. I mean, this $2.2 trillion economic stabilization package is the largest of its kind in modern American history. I know you kind of mentioned where some of that money comes from, but is this putting us more in debt? Where does it all originate? Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, you know, we're up to, you know, 21, 22 trillion dollars in total debt for the United States. So this adds on to it. They're talking about a fourth bill. There's probably going to be a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth before this is all over because this is a crisis of, you know, the magnitude of this is unprecedented. But yes, in short, it does. Um, This is, is kind of the problem here. And let's just take a step back and look at the political issues of this in Washington. You had three Republicans back in, in 2009 in the Senate voting for the stimulus bill that was engineered by President Obama and Democrats who then controlled both the House and Senate. Nobody voted for it in the House of Representatives. In fact, the Republicans, notably Kevin McCarthy and others, he was just the whip at the time, they said what we want to do was to, uh, was to um, uh, you know, not give President Obama any wins whatsoever. I mean, that was a big bill. It was more than $700 billion. They had more than $700 billion that they had approved for TARP, which was the initial financial rescue package, uh, the bailout, as some people described it. So right there, to contrast what the, the total amount that was spent in reference to the financial crisis in 2008-2009 was about $1.4 trillion. And the government made a lot of that back via TARP. In fact, uh, there was about half of that that was made back. That's the way that program was, was structured to, to rescue those, quote, troubled assets. That's what TARP stood for. So when you compare this in, in, in size, uh, I mean, in real dollars today, we only spent about $4 trillion on World War II. So here in just about a month period, uh, you know, we're starting to rival that figure right now in comparing 1940s dollars to, you know, 2020 dollars. Right. It's kind of crazy to me that we're talking parts of this stimulus package are in the billions and then that seems like a lot. But then you realize that it's two point two trillion. I mean, that's so much money. I want to go back to uh, part of phase three. It offers three hundred seventy seven billion dollars in federally guaranteed loans to small businesses. But what qualifies as a small business? Uh Aha. Here's the problem. (laughs) 
because they have talked about companies that have just 50 people. Uh, they have talked about people that have 10 people. There's a lot of provisions in this bill that deal with the so-called gig economy. You know, people mm-hmm. who drive for Lyft or Uber, uh, people who run Airbnbs. You know, there was a guy out west in, in California who said, you know, he had 90% of his dates. He has a place in San Francisco that was always booked and now he's down to zero. So are they small businesses? Well, technically, yes. And this is where there was this across the board uh, approach to this, where, you know, the government often talks about, and, and, and certainly sometimes conservatives, that they don't like to, quote, pick winners and losers. So this is where you had a lot of derision where people were criticizing, say, the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., which got $25 million, which is you know, you have to get a lot of zeros to the right of the decimal point just to figure out how much $25 million is when you compare it to $2.2 trillion. I mean, I mean, there's several zeros to the right of the decimal point right there when you're thinking of a fractional portion of, of the distribution. But this is where they said we're not going to pick winners and losers, uh, whether it be, you know, things like the Kennedy Center, which is not a small business, but those gig economy workers and, and quote, true small business, somebody who runs a deli on the corner or a dry cleaner or a gas station. Um, That's where some people have expressed concern on Capitol Hill as to what the amount of, uh, about about the amount of oversight. That's going to be a hard one because on one hand, Marco Rubio, a Republican uh, senator from Florida, the chair of the Small Business Committee, Ben Cardin from Maryland, the Democrat, the ranking member there, they have both indicated that they wanted to get this money out quickly and not a lot of red tape. But how do you apply proper oversight? And I can tell you this, anytime you're spending $2.2 trillion, some of the biggest stories that we will start to see once they put out the fires with this, uh, you know, with the virus and health and things maybe get back to normal in a few months down the road or, or longer, frankly, is was there abuse? Was there proper oversight? Democrats will argue that they, you know, put in specific provisions in the bill that were not there before for big businesses and small businesses an inspector general, an IG, as it's called in Washington, to kind of oversee these programs. And if you're not putting a lot of red tape in, which might be necessary, which is probably a good idea by by Rubio and others, because you want to get the money out fast, that also lends itself to possible abuse. And how do you go back and check to make sure that money is being spent wisely? You know, that was the issue with TARP, is that they had, you know, periodic reports to Congress Steve Mnuchin, the uh, Treasury Secretary, was on Fox News Sunday over the weekend, and you know he was asked by Chris Wallace, "Look, you know, will you provide someone to testify before Congress to talk about the oversight when they come calling?" And he was a little vague in his response. That is going to be inevitably one of the biggest questions down the road: Was this money spent wisely? Uh, was it spent appropriately? And where were the abuses? Right. I mean, when you talk about spending that money wisely. You have small businesses, you have big businesses, they're getting $500 billion in government lending, but that's for distressed companies. So I'm going to ask you a similar question that I did with the small businesses. How can you tell when a business or a big business is distressed? Yeah. Well, I mean, let's start with the airline industry. Um, you know, they get about, you know, 58 billion. If you put two different ledgers together here, uh, they're going to have problems. Rodney Davis, Republican congressman from Illinois, was flying in last Friday for the vote in the House of Representatives. He drove to St. Louis to catch a flight to Washington, D.C. He said there were four people on the airplane and two, two were members of Congress. 
Uh, I have a former colleague who got on a flight from Las Vegas to Cincinnati. And when you take away the TSA fees and the fuel fees and all the other things, the taxes that are in there, the flight was 55 cents. The actual airline part was 55 cents. So obviously the airline industry is going to be hurting, you know, big time. But then again, you know, people are going to say there are so many small businesses, which are the backbone of the economy. As I say, small delis and takeouts and dry cleaners. All of these firms, all, all these companies, all these businesses are going to be getting money. And of course, how do they retain their employees? And this was something in the bill that was very important is that they said, you know, we want these companies to be able to go back in and, and, and retain these employees so that they're ready to go when things return to normal. And when you talk to economists and look what they have written about this, they said, it's not like all of a sudden in June or July or whenever things are, are semi-normal again that you throw a switch and everything gets back to running. Uh, Are people going to be willing to go in and congregate in restaurants? Are people Mm -hmm. going to be willing to go in and congregate in bars and pubs? Uh, That's going to be a problem. And you can throw as much money that the federal government has at any of those small businesses. And it might not make a difference if people aren't willing to come in and do the, the kind of the social things that they're used to doing. And, you know, we might find that maybe, maybe it creates another lane in the economy. You know, it's pretty good to have your groceries delivered, you know, which was around, but more people are going to do that. Maybe it's better to have your dry cleaning delivered, which people were doing. Uh, maybe there's not as much dry cleaning to do because people aren't going to the office, for instance. You know, do you think that we're going? Maybe. Right. I, those are luxuries for sure. Right. And I don't know if people will be able to afford those luxuries post coronavirus, this whole crisis. But do you think we're going to see a huge change once we return back to normal life? Are people going to be elbow bumping instead of handshaking? Are people going to start going out to dinner less? It's very possible. I mean, um, I am a huge sports fan, for instance. And there have been- Who's your team? uh, Well, I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan. I'm from Southwest Ohio. I root for the Cincinnati Bengals. Why sometimes? I'm not sure, but that's okay. I am a, a Bengals fan. Uh, I'm sometimes. a huge Washington Capitals fan. And, okay. you know, so you might have a situation where you have half of the people willing to go who say, great, we can't wait to get out of our house. Thank you. And the other half saying, I'm not going until there is a vaccine. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is a social experiment that's never been tried before. I'll give you an example here. My father, uh, I have an 89-year-old father in, in rural Ohio. He does very well. He's healthy. Uh, he's been staying in. He's had his groceries delivered, and he can get out and, and, and work in the yard and do things like that. But he tells me these stories about World War II, and you had people who were willing to work if they could find work. Uh, he told me a story about how uh, this is during rationing during the Great Depression and Second World War. Of, of His mother gave him a butter stamp. Uh, to go down to the little store in the town. This is, he lives on the same piece of property where I grew up, frankly. And he lost, cool. the, butter, he lost the butter stamp uh, walking to the store. And just the hardship that that was. You didn't have a butter mm-hmm. stamp. And so we're not to that point, but we don't know what this is going to be like when people come back. And, and I think about this in, in sitting at home and watching movies and television shows. There was a scene the other night where somebody jumped up and shook somebody's hand. And I, and I, I, I kind of recoiled on the couch because no. I'm like, you can't do that. You know? <laughs> and I wonder on Capitol Hill, Abby, where you know, we did a story on this on, 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 on the TV side for Fox several weeks ago. This is before this really escalated to the degree it is now about what numbers were doing, about not handshaking, elbowing, putting their hands over their hearts, uh, tapping feet. 
all that sort of stuff. People are afraid to even get near one another now. I mean, this was the problem we saw in the House of Representatives with the vote on Friday, is that members, most of them were apoplectic to even come into the chamber and be around each other. Think about this. There are currently 430 members of the House of Representatives. That is 330 more members than in the Senate. (laughs) That's just how much bigger the House of Representatives is. And that's why members were reluctant to be around one another. And so- This other issue that's risen from a congressional standpoint is, are they going to explore the idea, maybe in emergencies like this, uh, the concept of remote voting? Uh, that's something mm-hmm. that they have already put a report together on ways that they could, they could limit that and do that. But you need to have a pretty sophisticated system with you know, multi-ID verification and encryption. As somebody put it to me a few days ago, they said, you did not want this to be the second coming of the app that was used in the Iowa Democratic Caucus. Going back to the bill for a second, when you're breaking down that $377 billion if you're a small business or that $500 billion if you're a larger company, is that money split evenly amongst them all? Let's say one big company is more distressed than another. Do they get more money or is it just even across the board. You see, it's, it, it's pretty evenly distributed right now. And that's why when you're, t- and you're talking about loans, you're talking about loans. If you right. have a, if you, it is distributed evenly in the raw dollar sense. But again, we're talking about loans that are handled by the Small Business Administration. And there are some questions as to whether or not they have the capacity to put this all out. You see, this was, this was the knock, you know, that, that, you know, we, you know, some folks don't like government until they like government. And all of a sudden they like government. Mm-hmm. So do they have the capacity to do that? And so when you have bigger firms, of course, or bigger small businesses, so to speak, well, the type of loan they're going to ask for naturally is going to be bigger than a smaller you know, company that you know, employs you know, five, 10 people. You know, they make widgets or something. And so, you know, and also no one quite knows how they exhibit their level of distress. Uh, that's a real problem, you know, because uh, again, you, you might say, well, this is a bigger company, uh, they deserve more, or they're in an area, say New York City, or Louisiana, or Washington State that was hit hard by this, so do, do they deserve more? A lot of those de- details aren't worked out. That's what's so extraordinary about this. You know, you don't put together an 880-page bill and then understand directly how it works. Again, mm-hmm. in, in, as I say, in a social experiment that we've never done. I mean, I think a lot of this is going to be making it up as they go along, frankly. What do you think is the most important part of this bill? Probably the direct payments for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. You've had a lot of people, a, a lot of firms that have suspended saying, you know, there's some home payments and car payments. There's, there's, some, there's some of that going on out in the economy, and that's wise. But some people, they're like, look, I need to make my house payment. I can do that with some or most of this money that I'm going to get on the 6th of April, or I can make a car payment or pay my insurance or my deductible or whatever. And if nothing else, it might not be that they can go out and spend that money because they're frankly not, but just the idea that it gives them confidence that they're there. I also thought that the provision uh, about the gig economy workers, because, you know, most of them do not qualify for unemployment insurance, the way that that is structured. You know, that is just that you go and you drive for a few hours at night or you deliver food for Grubhub or whatever. And so that wasn't considered to be, you know, people who are off the job. So the fact that they're taking care of some of those folks, um, that's extremely important. And then I would say probably third, uh, the small business provision that you refer to, 
because again, I, uh, you know, that is the, the lifeblood of the economy and the fact that they had to do a major portion of that. Yeah, you mentioned the, the first thing that you think is probably the most important thing about this bill is the direct payments. How yes. do people get that money? It More should of a technical show, question. Yeah, it should show up, according to Mnuchin, if you have direct deposit. Uh, that's going to be pretty, pretty simple. And again, it's, it's the key that it's based off, you know, if you're a taxpayer of the United States, as I said, you know, there's only about 6% of people who don't qualify for that. So it should just show up. But I will bet your bottom dollar that uh, come the 7th of April, there will be people who say, I didn't get it. Why not? There was a glitch. There was a computer, gl-, you know, so there's going to be a lot of that. And, and or, or I came in right under the threshold. You know, there are these different thresholds as to how much you make and what you qualify for uh, up to $99,000 and then down to the $75,000 threshold. And people might say, well, wait a minute, I deserve to get that. Again, you know, this has to be done by people. And you're doing it in a crisis. And so they're not going to bat a thousand in the implementation of that. There's going to be probably a lot of fighting about that in April as to if people received what they were technically deserved. All right. We've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. Speaking of fighting, something that came up in the talk of the bill was pork barrel spending. Can you explain that term and why does it happen in Congress? Pork barreling is always in the eye of the beholder. Uh, a lot of it came, you know, dovetails from this idea that they would dole out things for members locally, or they would push for local things and in various pieces of legislation, bridges and and, and roads and and just you know programs that some people didn't find essential. Uh, my experience in covering Congress is that most members, back when they used to do a lot of earmarking, which wasn't actually adding money, it was just saying we're going to devote a certain amount of money to a certain project at a certain place at a certain time. That's the definition of an earmark according to the House rules. And they virtually eliminated that a couple of years ago. Um, That a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, People would get upset. I'll give you a, a, a wonderful example of this. So the wine industry in Washington state, this was uh, some, some time ago, and they talk about how much that, you know, that, that's a, it's not California, but the wine industry in Washington state is a big deal. But they got about $400,000 for viticultural research. Again, this is several years ago. And I remember Rick Larson, who is a Democratic congressman from Washington state, he walked me through how they worked with local universities and how their viticulture programs at the universities, how that was so important to study um, you know, you know, potential, uh, you know, floxora and, and problems that you have when you're growing grapes for, for wine production. And $400,000, again, in federal spending is lent in your pocket, even compared to the change that you're carrying in your pocket. But people get all exor- exercised about this. And this is why people were so upset about the Kennedy Center uh, or public broadcasting, for instance. And, and, and again, this is where I say they did not pick winners and losers. You can't say that, we're, we, that all of the economy is hurt and then say, oh, Kennedy Center, that's a problem. Or all the people who work in the arts or performing arts, that that's, that doesn't qualify. How is that different than an Uber driver, frankly? You know, people who are stage technicians or, 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 or sew costumes or whatever. You know, those are gig jobs. They go and work for theaters and so on. Uh, you know, those who perform in the orchestra, that's a problem. Now, I just saw today that everybody in the National Symphony Orchestra was laid off. Um, the answer I don't have is, is, is what's the difference there? Uh, but again, you, you know, as a society, it's going to be very hard to come back and you're going to say, okay, well, why did we have, why is sports okay? 
and arts isn't, you see? Or why is the guy who runs the deli okay, but somebody who runs a small gallery not okay? Where uh, you might say, well, arts are not important. Well, uh, in the economy, they are because people go and they pay money or they have memberships there. Uh, all of those things are very important. And that's why it's going to be, it, again, it's always going to be up to the eye of the beholder. Uh, and that's where, uh, coming back to your, the nub of your question, Abby, about what is pork barrel spending. Again, I always say it comes down to who sees it and who likes it because members love to go back and tout the fact that they you know, had influence and, mm. and showed that they did something back home, which is often very necessary. Uh, there was there's some pork barrel spending, and this is where the term earmark got a really bad name, why they virtually eliminated that in Congress a few years ago to say, look, uh, you know, you're, you're spending all this money for this so-called bridge to nowhere in Alaska, which a lot of people couldn't justify. Uh, but again, it came down to, you know, you had influential members who were willing to put things into those bills. And, and, and what they were used, this was the criticism of earmarks, they were used basically as bribes to say, okay, you need a little fat on the steak to make the thing sizzle in the pan, you know? And so they would, they would kind of say, all right, I don't like all the other things that are in this bill, but I got my project, and so that helps. And I could even argue, even though there weren't, quote, earmarks in the third phase of the coronavirus legislative response or, or pork barrel spending, potentially, there was all sorts of stuff in that bill that, that people on both sides of the aisle, depending on their political disposition, did not like. But, you know, it passed 96 love in the Senate. And what right. that tells you is that people said, OK, there's enough in here that I'm OK with it. Now, a lot of that was driven by just needs and we cannot not pass this bill or we're going to this is going to be an utter disaster. Okay, that makes sense because I was going to ask you if there's so much disagreement and it's recognized that there might be some pork barreling, how does that bill then get passed? Yeah, so yeah, it, yeah exactly. And, 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 that's, and that's where, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, had their reservations about it and, and where it's easy for people to, to, to pick on one or two individual provisions and say, well, that's not good. The one thing that, I, that I've learned in all my years covering the Capitol, I mean, there is no perfect bill. And you will hear members on both sides say, well, I wouldn't have written the bill this way, but I will vote for it because, you know, it's a binary process. It's either yes or no. Are you going to say, okay, there's 80% of the things in this bill that are good. There's 75%. There's 50.1% in my mind of things Mm -hmm. that are good. And that's the judgment, the adjudication that members have to make to say yes or no. They don't say, I'm I'm a 75% yes on this bill. That's not the way the voting system works. Either yes or no. It's binary. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when it came to the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP, both sides of the aisle post-recession criticized that bill a little bit. So it would be unfortunate to see that again. And this obviously isn't the first time the economy has struggled. So how did the stimulus packages pass during the 2008 Great Recession? like TARP and the economic stimulus package of 2008, how did that impact Congress's negotiation of this bill? Well, I think that, that, that there are echoes of it, first of all, because, you know, you had, you know, large swaths of the economy that were, you know, in trouble. Uh, you had concerns about the speed at which Congress was going to pass the bill. Um, probably the thing that resonated the most with me, and this was about a week and a half ago, where I was on the phone with a lot of, of key sources, and one who is very close to the, the, the centrality of writing this bill said, we need to pass this bill by Monday. And I said, 
okay, through both the House and Senate, through the House, have it written, no, by Monday. Mm-hmm. And what that harkened back to was in, in September of 2008, um, Nancy Pelosi had not heard from Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary at the time, uh, for several days, and called him just to see how things were going. This is when all these big you know, brokerage firms and things in Wall Street were really starting to suffer. And, she said, and he said to her, I need to come and talk to you right now, tonight. And she said, well, what about in the morning? And he said, no. He said, we won't have an economy by Monday. Really? And that's why you were seeing these market shocks. And so that was part of the education in the speed and need of doing this. Now, the other part was, let me just address TARP for a second to give you an example. TARP was a very fundamentally different program because I think it eventually went, I said, $700 billion. It eventually, I think the total, the grand price tag was about 831 at the end of the day. But they made money back. It was, it was written in a way that you were going to, you know, make money back once you stabilized uh, these, quote, troubled assets and got them back. And that's where the federal government made about, I think, about half of the money back on that. So it was a, a good deal in that regard. But the problem was, and if you remember with TARP, I've never seen anything like this. And th- there was a real fear about this on Capitol Hill. When the bill failed in the House of Representatives the first time, the Dow, it was about one o'clock in the afternoon, Abby, the Dow fell precipitously in synchronicity with the vote failing on the floor. At that point, a one-time single-point record, 777 points, a little more than $1 trillion in market capitalization. And I've never seen a real-time econometric judgment of what they did on the House floor. And there was a real concern that if they did not act in this instance today, that they were going to have, uh, you know, we've had these market shocks off and on for about a month now, that there was going to be that real-time judgment and the market fail if a bill failed on the floor. So there was that instructive uh, decision. Now, let me go to the stimulus, which was passed in 2009. Now, keep in mind, it took a few months to get it together. New president, you know, new Congress. Uh, there was great resistance on the Republican side of the aisle. And the Republicans generally viewed that bill as partisan. As I said, there were those who thought that it was just, they wanted to just block it on the Republican side of the aisle, you know, because they didn't want to award President Obama a, a big win right so off. So was the- there was there pork barreling? Sorry to interrupt. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. No, no, you're absolutely right. And there was heavy criticism that a lot of it was not designed to actually stimulate the economy or that it was, um, you know, things that were, you know, it was, it was wasted money, basically. And, and, and there, there, are, there are arguments on both sides as to how successful that was, frankly. Uh, we talk a lot about infrastructure. There were some infrastructure projects in there, but not to the degree that we probably need today. Um, and so that was the, the downfall of that bill, is that it, it was generally regarded, especially among Republicans, as an utter failure. I'm going to end with this because I know you are probably incredibly busy over there, but are we going to see more phases of this bill come through? Is that $2.2 trillion going to be the most that we see? What should we expect going forward? Again, because you don't have a model for this, and this is why the Congressional Budget Office on phase two was unable to give a total price tag of this because we don't know. And so much of this is contingent upon how people use those assets which have been allocated in this. So we could see, you know, maybe the price tag of this change, as I said, even, you know, let history be our guide. TARP went from 700 billion to 831. Um, And nobody knows what is needed next. You know, something that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the president had agreed upon 
uh, and was not in the bill was, was aid for pensions, suffering pension programs, which are extremely expensive, extremely expensive, and are footed often and backed by the federal government. Um, it's something that Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, did not want. Therefore, um, that's something that's probably going to be in that bill. Uh, the president has indicated now that he wanted some sort of hazard pay, maybe, for, for medical workers on the front lines. Uh, what that would look like and how much that would cost, nobody knows. Uh, I, I can say this. I could very easily, if this bill costs this much right now, and you look at those two things, maybe alone that I just mentioned, and then you figure whatever else you have to do for the economy, because they have to get down the train tracks a little bit, Abby and figure out what's working, what's not, or what's needed. That's why you just don't put another bill together right away. And that's why Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, has said maybe we'll just wait a little bit of time here and see what happens. But you can see where another bill easily could cost well over a trillion, if not rival 2.2 trillion. It's just the way it works. And, what's, and the other thing that I'll tell you that's going on behind the scenes, which nobody has talked about yet, they are already working on the annual appropriations bills. Those are the 12 bills in the discretionary side of the ledger that I referred to earlier, because they have to fund the government by September 30th of this year. That fiscal year 2021 will start on October 1st. And if you spent 1.3 trillion, you know, last year, I can only imagine that that side of the ledger is going to be geometrically higher. I mean, I, I could throw out a number, say, you know, one six, one seven, mm. two trillion, right there. Are you worried? Know. Are you say, knowing so much about this looking forward and, and our economy? Are you at all stressed out? Frankly, it was very stressful covering the Hill at this time. Um, I can imagine. Because for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you why. When you started to see members, this was a week ago Monday, starting to erupt on the Senate floor angrily, angrily fighting with one another. Uh, I, that's something I don't, I, I had to go back to 1995 to see anything that was close to that, let alone something that to that degree. They were, and the reason is they were scared. They were scared for two reasons. They were scared of trying to get the bill done, which was not done at the time. And number two, they were scared of their own health. And therefore it was stressful in the sense of, okay, are they going to get this done? And B, the fact that we were all up on Capitol Hill covering this thing. Uh, you know, this is the interest, this is the irony, and I'm not complaining about this, but these are just, this is just how it was. You've had House and Senate staff, for the most part, working remotely for weeks now. You have U.S. Capitol Police officers at the Capitol every day. When the Senate was in, you had the Senate there, but not the House. When the House came back Friday, you had the Senate gone, but just the House there. Who was there every single day? The press corps. And that this place was a vector. And the fact that you had multiple members on both sides of the building coming down with this, multiple members quarantining, the fact that the Senate Republicans continued to have a lunch, mind you, a lunch on a daily basis in the same room, which people mm. thought was just beyond uh, bizarre. And as soon as Rand Paul got sick, then you had all of his Republican colleagues get mad at him because they think that you know, he put them at risk. And then they started not having these lunches uh, and the fact that the press had to be all around there. I mean, these were some of the tactics that I, I, I took as a reporter. I deliberately, you know, my, the way I kind of operate on Capitol Hill is probably 95% of what I do is off the record. I like to go up and talk to people off to the side. This is, you know, through relationships that you've coddled, you know, you know developed over the years and you get to know somebody and you can kind of say, okay, let's just talk here. And they're going to give you the straight, the straight dope. 
You can't do that when you have to whisper to somebody in a corner because you can't be within six feet of them. Okay. Right. That's the everybody hears it. Right. But you can't even, you know, but there's a bit B, then there were fewer people around and C. So what I would do when the Senate was wrestling with this, I would come in through the house side of the Capitol. Now my booth, my office in the Capitol is on the house side, but I go back and forth all day long. And we were doing our live shots, our TV broadcasts outside as much as possible, weather permitting, where there was a place down in the basement of the Capitol when it would rain or the wind was very high. Springtime, we could do live shots. We were kind of away from everybody else, not in the Russell Rotunda or the Will Rogers statue area, which is where we do a lot of those things. And then Friday when the House was in, I deliberately shifted that live position over to the Senate side and I came in the Senate door and there was kind of a back way. I went up to my office on the House side. And this is just a way to, you know, to stay away from folks because, you know, you, you still have to report on these things. And it's extremely important to report on these things, but how do you keep yourself safe? And, and am I safe? I don't know. Uh, I think so, but maybe not. Uh, it's just remarkable. Uh, it's, uh, th- that it was very stressful in that sense. I'm sure. And, and we're all praying that you guys stay safe and healthy too, because you are the way that the American people get this information. And on that note, I really appreciate you joining me. I'm lucky that we got to do this over podcast because we don't have to whisper to each other. We can just talk. That's right. <laughs> so it's perfect, but good luck with everything over there. I saw that you're, you're with your wife and, and hopefully your family and we're thinking about you over there. Thank you, Abby. And you too stay safe. And I hope you're with your friends and family as much as you can be and and wishing you good health. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about Congress's new coronavirus stimulus package. Chad says that, in his opinion, the most important part of the bill is the direct payments. He also says that small businesses are the lifeblood of the economy. So that small business provision is vital. Earmarking and pork barreling are different, but are also similar in the sense that lawmakers are trying to put extra things into the bill that might not necessarily be related to the bill's objective. This is the largest stimulus package ever passed in U.S. history. To put that into perspective, for the full year of 2019, the federal budget was just over $3 trillion for the entire year. And in one month, we passed a $2.2 trillion bill. That's in one month. And something I think we all learned is that Chad Pergram is a walking textbook and incredibly helpful. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcasts.com and don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.